Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I am Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we got a lot of stuff to talk about, man. We have an arena tournament this weekend. We have the Hunter Burton Memorial Open coming up at the end of the month. We have SCG Regionals, which is also modern, and a bunch of Pioneer tournaments, too, on the horizon. So where do you want to begin? Why don't we start? By talking about the Hunter Burton Memorial just for a second, because I just booked my flight. I am I am locked in. I am super excited to head down to Dallas for the second year in a row and participate in that tournament. And I think I just want to take a minute to hype it up a little bit. And because we're kind of getting close to the point where people need to get their travel plans in order, make sure they have their flight, they have their hotel. You got about a month left until it happens. And I just want to put the plug in one more time. Not being paid to do this. This is just an event you and I both care about a lot. But it really is a really special event, and I want to make sure all of our listeners know about it. Yeah, uh, end of March, so March 27th through the 29th is basically when you want to be in Texas. It is in the Dallas area. It is organized by a group of people who were very close to a Magic player by the name of Hunter Burton, who I think seven years ago at this point uh, lost his life due to suicide, and it has just deeply affected so many people in that area. He was a big part of the community, has a pro tour top eight to his name and everything. And everyone, like his family, friends, people who were figureheads in the community got together and they're like, we want to do something about this. So they run this weekend full of tournaments with cash prizes, stuff like that. And it is all to spread awareness of suicide prevention. Yeah, a truly noble cause and also just a great weekend of magic on top of it. A really positive space to play magic in. And there's PT invites on the line now this year. And I believe it's both the two-day modern event and the Pioneer PTQ. Do I have that right? Do you have the information at hand? That sounds right to me. I would have to double check that though. I mean, that's that's not what I'm there for, honestly. I, I would go play any form of magic they wanted me to on the weekend and be very happy about it. It's about seeing the community. It's about raising some money for a very good cause. And I am happy to head down to Texas every year for the foreseeable future to participate in this event. Same. This is your second year in a row. This is going to be my third year in a row. Uh, if you all want to find out more information, HunterBurtonMemorialOpen.com has all the information that you could possibly need. And I'm sure if you follow me or Brian on Twitter, we'll be retweeting things about this event as it gets closer and everything. And we're going to be there. I think we're going to be battling this year. We did commentary last year and that was fun, but I think we can do more net good by being there just by being on the floor and interacting with the players. Yeah, it just felt a little isolating. I had a really good time, but I didn't get to see people as much as I would have liked because we were in a room doing commentary a lot of the time. This feels like a more organic way to participate. And I mean, I would have fun either way, but this is going to really be great to be involved in the tournament and, you know, try and win it, do a little prep, try and take down the Hunter Burton Memorial Tournament. That way I, I can take the check and hand it right back over to them. That's that's my goal going into this event. Yeah, it's it's really hard to get me fired up to compete in a tournament, you know, when, when I sit down to, to play someone nowadays, it's just like, I, I feel like they want it for whatever reason more than I do, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's really difficult for me to have that killer instinct. And I don't know if, if I get to win the tournament and get the money and then just donate it all back, maybe that's enough to get me fired up. We'll see. Yeah, that's good motivation. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at the schedule. 
The big moderate event starts on Saturday. And then, yes, there is a Pioneer PTQ on Sunday. There's a bunch of other side events. There's a Pokemon TCG League Cup, too. That's also a 1K. It's just like a, a bunch of rad stuff going on. So definitely, if you are in the area, if you have the time, check it out. There's a bunch of cool stuff. It is it is well worth your time. It is unlike any other Magic event that I've ever been to. People are there having fun. They know that they're not there necessarily just for themselves, right? It's not to like, oh, win the tournament and get this money, get this invite. Like they, they know that they're playing for a good cause. And it just makes the event like way more friendly and way more positive than any other Magic tournament I've ever been to. Totally agree. And you mentioned like the the cool ancillary stuff. I don't know what they were doing specifically this year, but I know last year they had artists there working. There was silent auction type stuff, like these cool magic inspired motorcycles that they brought in. And there was like a party on Friday night. So th- there's so many things going on. It really is a unique event that is worth checking out. Yeah. If y'all want to scroll back like a year, I had a, a photo thread from things that were going on last year on Twitter if you want to check that out. But yeah, like there's there's Chaos Sealed, Legacy 1K, Modern 1K, Transformers TCG tournaments, a Pioneer 1K, Standard 1K. Like there's just a bunch of different tournaments. This is this is like, Can you know. bring a you, lot of decks with me. Yeah, like when, when we used to go to like Gen Con or Origins back in the day, I don't know if you ever actually went to one of those. And they just had like all these sweet side events to play. And that is what this event is. Yeah, that is the vibe I get 100%. Word. Uh, so... Get your modern decks. Do you want to talk about Arena then? Can we jump into that? Yeah, I think that's where the big event lies this weekend. As always, our goal is to prepare our listeners the best we can. And there is the Mythic Points Challenge this weekend. Did I name that correctly? Did I actually get it right? I think so. Okay. I I did not know the name of it until we actually spit the words out of my mouth. So if I got it right, I'm impressed with myself. Uh, But it's an event basically part of OP without any hard payoff. It's just your record rewards you mythic points, which of course could become important down the road. You never know. Yeah. And I, I like this tournament structure and I was just looking up uh, the information on the events before the cast and I closed those tabs. So I can't actually tell you what it's officially called, but yeah, you, you try and get to uh, 10 wins that gives you uh, a certain amount of like gems and stuff. And then, you can also get mythic points for this. And it's obviously very ethereal, right? Like sure. I'm sure the vast majority of people out there are just like, well, what are six mythic points worth? How hard should I try for this? Should I be testing for this event? Should I actually like carve this out on my schedule or should I go do something else? Like how, how much is this worth it? And I think the answer to that is basically dependent on how much you plan on interacting with organized play. Like if you are, going to play in a bunch of PTQs and the arena events and stuff like the, the points do matter. They do add up. And if you find yourself like, you know, just shy of rivals or something at the end of the season and didn't play in some of these challenges, like you are going to be kicking yourself. So I think this is kind of like the best way to set yourself up for the season. Yeah. You never know how things are going to break. I know my own personal experience. I basically had a season where I was playing no magic whatsoever. And then the last two events of the season, I had a GP top four and a PT top whatever. And I ended up missing whatever the first level was on the pro point thing at that time by one point. So basically all I had to do was play one more event somewhere along the line. And I would have racked up an additional PT qualification and maybe could have started a snowball going, but 
that was not on my radar at the time. So I passed on those opportunities and ended up just shy. I would just play this tournament if you're qualified. You obviously, if you are a top 1200 mythic ladder finisher, you play a lot of magic. You love magic. If you have the free time, do this one, even if you don't particularly see yourself as the type of person who is apt to seize on these points. Yeah. So there are actually a lot of people qualified for this. We didn't just off the top of our head, like trying to guess, it was like, well, is it going to be this month? Probably not, because I don't think the season is ending before this tournament starts. So I guess it has to go on off of last month. And then we looked it up, and it's all three Throne of Eldraine seasons and the Theros Beyond Death season. And that's top 1,200 Mythic for Constructed and Limited. So there are going to be a lot of people qualified. If you top 1,200 in one of those seasons, you are qualified. Check your account. Under profile, you'll have a Mythic qualifier badge thing. Next to it, uh, I checked mine because I qualified during uh, Throne Season 1. I played in the uh, Arena PTQ thing and haven't really played a ton of Arena since then, but I'm qualified for this thing, and that's cool. Yeah, nice little qualification. Give you something to do this weekend. Thousands and thousands of players apparently joining you. Yeah, so I had Standard on Lockdown as of two weeks ago, but now... Womp womp. Things are, are different as it, it tends to go when there are big tournaments and people are also trying to break it. So DreamHack Anaheim hosted DreamHack's first, I believe, first arena tournament, maybe just first big arena tournament. And the, the prizes were absurd. They, they capped it at like 300 and something people and only 90 some showed up and it paid out to top 32 or something. Yeah, incredible equity in this tournament if you were fortunate enough to attend this event. And it was on my radar and like something I wanted to do, but ultimately I thought some of the details were a little murky and couldn't find really solid information and I ended up passing on it. Uh, I guess I regret that sort of in retrospect because it seems like things actually went pretty smoothly and, you know, there is plenty of available slots. But one of the big problems was you didn't, you weren't guaranteed a slot in this tournament until after you signed up for the larger convention. Right. And you need to buy that, a badge to get in. Yeah, it was weird. It, it was all very weird. And I think the first time this particular form of esports has interacted with the magic community, nobody really understood what was going on. So I chose to sit this event out and maybe now regret it a little bit. Well, I, I think it's fine. I mean, now you know, but I guess it's on everyone else's radar too. So when the next DreamHack rolls around and they're going to have another one of these events, then I think people might be more quick to sign up and everything. Yes, uh, location is better too, I think is a, a huge, huge factor. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so yeah, people are going to know what they're getting into. They're going to know that the equity was good for the last one and that will likely influence their decision. I also thought about it. I went to a DreamHack in Toronto last year or the year before to play Shadowverse. And that was a ton of fun. And even after like busting out of the tournament or in between rounds, just like walking around the venue, like I'm not a big, you know, like shoot 'em ups person or fighting game person or like Rocket League or whatever, but just like walking around and seeing the spectacle and seeing what everyone else was up to was very cool. Yeah, I appreciate all these gaming subcultures. Even if I don't have the deepest roots in them, it's always cool to see them play it at a very high level and to see just like what the community is like. I think that's a ni nice thing to check out as well. Yeah. And there was a Hearthstone tournament going on too. So I got to chat with some of the people who I knew, uh, one of them being Orange, who was a guest on this podcast, got to hang out with him for a little bit, hadn't seen him in a while. And that, that sort of thing is sweet. I met one of the players 
who was playing Street Fighter and basically just like helped give him directions to the venue when he showed up, you know, and then we just got to chatting and it, it turns out that like, you know, his lifestyle, my lifestyle are pretty similar, right? And it's just like things like that, where it's like you play different games, but you, you kind of get each other. Yeah, for sure. So it, it was sweet. And I, I do want to go back to another dream hack. If I'm playing, if I'm not, whatever, I don't really care all that much. I would just like to go and do it all again. And for this one, I was in the middle of packing a lot of boxes. So it was fairly irresponsible of me, I think, to to go. And given that I actually got all my stuff done, barely, I, I feel like I couldn't have afforded to go. That is fair. But one of the upsides of you packing up to move is that you're actually moving closer to the next dream hack. So that's makes your trip very easy to that next event. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Always look at the bright side, Gerald. Oh, I, I mostly do. Dude, things, things are going to be good. It's going to be good no matter what. And if, if something's bad, how do I fix it? That's, that's all I want to figure out. Well, so I think there was a similar question going into this tournament. Aaron Gertler, little beep, asked himself the same thing. If this format is solved, how do I fix that? And it seems like he did that in a very big way. Teamer Adventures. And if you look at his Twitter, he posted a screenshot with his percentages as he was climbing the ladder. Uh, eventually eventually hit number one on the ladder. I think it was 86% win rate, 16-0 against Azorius. Just kind of dominating everyone. And I remember him saying like, oh, you know, Team of Reclamation is kind of a tough matchup. That's why I added two Aether Gusts to the sideboard. And then I looked at his match win percentage against Team of Rec and he was like 16 and eight or something. It's like, oh, this is my bad matchup. <laughs> right. Yeah. When your bad matchups say 75% are you're usually feeling pretty good about the state of your deck at the moment. So yeah, I mean, this is just a wild piece of deck building. And it's so weird because when the format gets set on its ear, a lot of the time, it's a deck that comes out of nowhere, right? Something that you just completely didn't expect, not on anyone's radar. But this deck doesn't have quite that quality. I think everyone knows about this deck. Just everyone thinks it's tier three, tier four, not really a contender. And then here's this absurd, absurd run, not only on ladder, climbing all the way up to number one, but in this tournament where it just looked absolutely dominant and you understand as you watch the games play out okay wait a second i would have done this totally different and now you start to see the skill gap develop and you see the reward for really understanding this archetype and i, I don't think it's a stretch to say this is the hardest deck to play in standard and I, I don't think it's all that close actually i am overwhelmed by this deck in many many instances there are no clear game plans there's hundreds of branching paths you can take you have to plan many many turns in advance it's just this galaxy brain level deck and you have to have put the time in to find success with it and i obvious obviously aaron had done that coming into this event yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that complicated, right? Because it's just a bunch of like adventure creatures and some card drawing or whatever. But realistically, all of your cards are split cards. And yes. you you just like play these weird games where you are playing control and then you just see a line to kill your opponent in two turns. And you just yep. switch gears very quickly. So think about it in just in terms of like cards in hand. So you're playing Azorius Control, right? And you have a grip of like six cards. So you head into your turn and basically you have a pretty small field of options if you've been playing Magic for a long time. You can play one of your Sorcery Speed spells. You can do nothing, hold up mana going into your next turn. All of those are options. And certainly they're multitudinous. But think about a hand for Teamer Adventures and like you have a Clover in play. So... 
three of your cards are split cards. And now you can say, well, I can cast this creature. I can cast the other half of this card. I can cast Fae of Wishes. And now I have access to whatever, 14 new cards that I have to consider. Maybe I have access to two combinations of those 14 cards that I can twist in various ways. And right. it just snowballs out of control so, so quickly. And it does feel like the level of tuning that was put into the sideboard means there's the perfect card to go get in every single situation. Yeah, I have to go back and watch this coverage. Like you you were talking about how the deck is sort of a known quantity and admirable Nathan Zamora, who was doing commentary for the event, top four GP Portland with the deck too. So I, I want to see him doing commentary on Aaron playing out his matches. I feel like he's he's going to be able to provide some unique insight because he's also just one of the few players who actually plays the deck. Right. It, it was a fortuitous occurrence that uh, Nathan happened to be in the booth for this event and he did a great job in the booth as well. But like you said, one of the few players on the planet who can claim a, a similar level of knowledge of the deck. Yeah. And it's two players who have devoted a lot of time to this deck and they've also had some of the best results with it. So it's probably time for other people to get to practicing. And I think if you have been on the ladder at all over the past few days, that's happening a lot. There is a ton of team adventures on ladder right now. So the question has to be asked, if that's the case going into this event this weekend, how do you adapt? How do you change? Do you believe a bunch of people are going to pick this deck up? I think they will. And I think a lot of people are going to fall flat on their face without the appropriate number of reps in at this point. Yeah, it's not easy. If you go off of Aaron's results, it just seems like you have a good matchup against everything that currently exists. So what does that mean? I mean... If, if a lot of people do pick up the deck and it it does do very well, they're obviously going to be a huge portion of the winner's metagame and what can actually exploit that. Like, first you have to actually, you know, assume that a lot of people are going to play it. You have to assume that a lot of people are going to play it well and they're going to succeed with it. And I don't think we're quite there yet. I think what you said is basically true where you do need the reps to actually succeed with this deck. So I think people are going to play it, but it might not necessarily be dominant. That is my read on it as well. I wouldn't be surprised to see more success from the people who are practiced with it, but it's a little different now, right? You have a target on your head and that doesn't mean the whole format wholesale adopts at this stage, but there could be those small sideboard tweaks. Whereas before people weren't playing disenchant in their Azorius control deck, or they had passed on Heliod's intervention. Now maybe they say, okay, I should think about having a couple of copies of that card. Although I don't know if that's the best way to attack the matchup. That's just an example I'm coming up with. Really, I think you need some wholesale plan changes and a way to close out games. Because that's the thing about Teamer Adventures is that it does present a mid-range plan. It does present a combo kill. But the biggest selling point for me on this deck is that it just goes over the top of everyone else. It can, yeah. I mean, I, I talked about the games where you sort of shift into this this tempo deck and just try and kill your opponent in two turns, but you can also just draw all the cards in your deck. So yeah. uh, you, you, you have a lot of different options. So how do you see players adopting? Like who's going to step up and actually challenge this deck? One of the sore points we mentioned, Teamer Reclamation, that deck kind of had a miserable performance at DreamHack. And I think... Again, that was a deck that was a little bit below the radar. People started accounting for it, and people found ways to beat it for the most part. I will play anyone for money, Team Rec versus Azorius. Ooh, look at that confidence. Now, eight copies of Azorius Control across the top 16 of DreamHack. So 
obviously that was the deck to beat going into this weekend. And it looked dominant in most instances, quite frankly. You just saw it over yeah. and over, overpowering opponents until we got to the very end of the tournament. And Aaron absolutely had his way with the Azorius control players. But until that point, clearly the story of the tournament. Well, he played Monty in the finals, right? Right, Jeskai Fires in the finals. But leading up to that point, he started just clowning the Azorius right. control players who had worked their way to the top. Yeah, and his record on letters, 16-0 against Azorius, yep. right? I mean, you can say whatever you want for like small sample size or whatever, but 16-0, like... Something going on there. <laughs> Clearly, he has the edge in the matchup, right? Like maybe, obviously, you're not 100% to win or whatever, but... There's also some surprise factor where if the Azorius pilot has not played against this deck, they don't know, you know, when they're supposed to hold open mana for counter spells, what they're supposed to counter, what their game plan actually is. They don't have a sideboard plan against it. I'm sure that benefits him a lot. And going forward, that's going to change a little bit, but it doesn't really change the fact that he has a fundamental edge in the matchup, right? And right. I think that things going forward for Azorius, it's... It's, it's a lot more dicey now, right? Like, even if you play against someone who isn't as good as Aaron or Nathan at playing this deck, you're still at a deficit. And that is something yeah. that you have to be cognizant of. Well, so why don't we circle back to your particular take on Teamer Reclamation, then, if you believe this deck is now favored against Azorius Control with your setup. And it seems pretty clear this is one of the matchups that Aaron is worried about, thinks there are vulnerabilities to Teamer Reclamation. Makes it look like a pretty good choice for this weekend. Maybe. I mean, he he said that he was vulnerable and then still posted like the 75% win rate, right? So it's, I mean, how how vulnerable are you? I, I believe that Teamer Wreck is a deck that can certainly not necessarily like go over the top of them, but they can make it so the game uh, just gets out of control for them, where if you stick a Reclamation, if, if they don't have a Brazen Borrower like immediately, or even if they do have it, but don't have a lot of pressure to back it up, and you are able to assemble like wreck plus explosion you're you're going to be able to either contain what they're doing or just find a way to close out the game very quickly and their their deck like the, the teamer adventures deck is a little bit slower to go over the top right mm -hmm. so if if you just get to go explosion and then two turns later explosion again like that's probably going to be lethal and they don't have a lot of disruption to actually stop you so i can see certainly how that matchup would be difficult for them and that probably requires like a slightly different play style than what I'm used to for Reclamation because a lot of it is just like, you know, keep your head above water, eventually find a window to play a Reclamation and not have it like cost you a lot by like running into a counter spell or a borrower or whatever, you know, to find a way to slip into play, get the untaps, you're not actually losing tempo and then try and get ahead from there and I think against team or adventures, you can't really afford to give them all that time because they will right. set up and do a bunch of nonsense. So yeah, I, I think now it's just like you, you have to jam, you have to be more focused on like ramping and having mystical dispute and just fighting like those counter wars on turn four, turn five to resolve a reclamation and hope it sticks. Yeah. I will say playing against you, it seems like you don't, you didn't have a ton of jams in your range. You were mostly patient and trying to find the best setup because you believe that was possible. And that's a big part of understanding a matchup is just like, how many jams should I have in my range? How often do I have to go for this? And like, well, again, even, even setting things up that way, though, I still think you are cognizant of the fact that at times it will not be correct to play in that fashion. It's just you're chewing yeah. that a greater percentage of the time. So when we, when we were playing the, the grudge match, 
I knew that you had like 16 counter spells in your deck. So if you Smart. had good deck building. Yeah, if you had mana open, it's like, well, I can't just jam because you're going to counter my thing and then play Teferi or Narset. And if if I had an answer to it, then that's fine. You know, if I had a fry in hand or something. But there, there just weren't a lot of scenarios like that. And it's just more fortuitous for me to sit there and just like play a Chemister's Insight and you end up having like dead mana on that turn and stuff like that. Like, I just knew that fundamentally that was the correct plan in a lot of the games that we played. And of course, yeah, the, the, the team or adventures matchup, I don't think is going to have a lot of situations like that. So you need to adjust your deck and your potential strategy, mulligan strategy, et cetera, for things like that. Any particular card choices that are reflective of that requirement that you can think of right now? I've been going lower on Uro and I think that you probably just want the maximum amount against them and more mystical dispute type things just so that you can actually ramp into reclamation plus dispute, try and protect it. But interesting. I, like, I think, Oro's I think also small. kind of honorable against them though. Like it's very difficult to actually use that as a proactive threat against team or adventures. Yeah. I just want it for the ramp and the small sure. life boost that will help when they're on like bone crusher, giant brazen bar or beat down plans. Like I'm okay. almost certainly not going to escape that thing in, unless we're in like the most dire circumstances. Word. That makes sense to me. But that's it. I don't I don't think that there's a good plan that works for Teamer Adventures and for Azorius. Like I'm very happy with Legion Warboss against Azorius, but I don't think it does anything against Teamer Adventures. I think you just have to do the wilderness reclamation thing because any of your small ball game plans aren't going to get it done. Yeah, very easily accounted for by the Bone Crusher Giants, which aren't really going anywhere. Like they may not be great against you, but there isn't a lot of flexibility in sideboarding. There may be some trimmed, but there's only a few ether gusts that are really coming in all that often. Occasionally there are exceptions to that, but that's yeah, the general plan for board. There might be some tutor targets that are slightly better to just bring in than to have in the right. sideboard because you're always going to go after like card A or card B. So card C and D can just go into the deck over the pseudo dead cards. Yep. But yeah, they, they don't get to change much, which is certainly helpful you know like if if the matchup is actually kind of bad and you get to exploit them not really having any sideboard cards against you well then uh maybe team Rack is the deck to play but then again i kind of hate playing that deck on arena so sure. i might be looking to play something else anyway you got anything else in mind that you're targeting right now no okay <laughs> maybe team adventures i mean it, it does seem very very good i have some experience with it I, I don't think it would be that difficult for me to pick up, but I would certainly want to get in at least a few reps beforehand. Got to talk about the second place deck as you and I continue to bemoan this deck. And it finishes second in every single major tournament, finished second at Worlds, finished second here. Of course, talking about Jeskai Fires, has anything changed in regards to your opinion on Jeskai Fires? Do you believe in this deck now? Are we just foolish, sticking to our guns way too long, trying to I, say this deck isn't that good? I definitely don't believe that the deck is better or anything. And Moni, I mean, one Oketra, two Elspeth Conquers Death, the Robber of the Riches in the sideboard. Like, he's got some some weird stuff that differentiates his list from the list that existed like three months ago. But I don't think it does enough to really <clears throat> move the needle for me. And I don't know, talking to Nick Prince, like he's playing this deck a little bit now and he's been pretty happy with it. He's just like, yeah, people just like don't know how to sideboard against you. They really just approach the matchup in 
fairly poor ways. And now that you have Robber the Rich, you can just do things like side out fires entirely against Azorius. And that leaves them with a, a bunch of dead cards. So I think kind of what Teamer Adventures is doing where they're just exploiting a lack of experience, Fires is kind of doing the same thing. And they've been able to exploit that a little bit with things like Robber of the Rich. So that does help them. Absolutely. But I think it is far past the time when that should be what you're trying to do in a standard tournament, right? Like at this point, you should probably bank on people having experience against your deck. Right. Yeah, I think I referred to this standard tournament as ripened in my article this week. It just feels like this is nearing its final form. And that's not to say there isn't room for innovation, adaptation, and particularly good sideboard plans is where I would look to get my edge going into this weekend. Uh, But I do think we know the players and we know what to prepare for at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I don't know where that leaves me. You know, I got to actually do some thinking on it, but I do think that playing Teamer Adventures or Teamer Rec is not a mistake on my end. And I do think that if you're playing Azorius, you need to do some work. Like you need to actually sit down, figure out the Teamer Adventures matchup and try and figure out a way to fix it. Only other deck I've seen lurking somewhat under the radar is just ban random good cards. Some people starting to build hype around that, but I, I don't get it. It doesn't seem to have any kind of coherent plan to me. I think Little Beep said, didn't necessarily want to play against it. There are a bunch of cards that are tough for Teamer Adventures to deal with, and it does that kind of tempo-y clock thing. So maybe that's a point in its favor, but I am not sold on those decks as anything worth exploring at this point. Yeah, I mean, when Azorius got really big and Teamer Rec 2, people were like, oh, maybe it's time for Simic Flash to come back. And I think Teamer Adventures mostly just does a better job of exploiting the weaknesses that Simic Flash would also exploit. But then again, Simic Flash might just be a deck that's also good against Teamer Adventures. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Why do you think this deck just missed its chance at being one of the top decks? And like you mentioned, there's the top four finish from Nathan Zamora at GP Portland. Did we just do a bad job turning people onto this deck? Or what's the story here? Knights, maybe? Like Knights is kind of scary and you don't have a lot of ways to stop really wide boards. And the the model red decks are a lot easier to contain, I think, because they only have so few cards that matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas Knights, like each card was kind of individually powerful, but it it's a lot harder for a red deck to actually get you dead if you're, you know, bouncing their Tor brand repeatedly or not allowing them to Ember Cleave you or whatever. So I think right, that right, might right. be it. Uh, it's just easier to contain Monored than it is to contain Knights, and Knights is just nowhere to be seen. Yeah, I, you know, obviously the logical step forward then is to consider Knights, but looking at basically every other deck which presently exists, there's no way I want to play Knights into something like Jeskai Fires, Azorius Control, all Nightmare matchups floating around besides this maybe Teamer Adventures deck that it could prey on. So I wouldn't advise going that route. Something like Red Black Sacrifice intrigues me a little bit. Like, I think that deck is close on power level a lot of times anyway and maybe decks like Azorius have to warp a little bit hard to find good matchups against Teamer and you can find a way through them with Red Black although I've heard people say they like their matchup on the Red Black side so maybe that's another deck that's still lurking just below the scenes ready to be picked up Jund is still out there I mean both these Mayhem Devil decks I think merit some consideration when you look at Edgewall Innkeeper decks I've always been happy being on the Mayhem Devil side of things against them 
Uh, obviously, this deck can do a bunch of things. It's not hyper-reliant on its innkeepers, but you see where I'm coming from. There are reasonable plans against their... I don't know which is really their A plan. I guess Clover is more their A plan, but you have good interaction that still comes with pressure when you're looking at these Mayhem Devil decks. What about Gruel Aggro? Just can't. Give me a dual land or I don't want to talk about Gruel Aggro. I, I just don't believe you can play that deck realistically given your mana. It just fails constantly. No, I'm going to do it. Okay, go for that's it. Great. You can take no, a shot. No. Look, if your mana lines up well, then I believe it could be totally reasonable. But like that's part of the equation and you just don't have reasonable mana in those decks. This is exactly the type of deck that I am very happy playing on Arena because Arena makes it so easy. That's true. You know, it's like playing something like Rule Aggro is where you're just like, wow, Arena is such a smooth program. And then you're just, you know, watching your opponent kind of like struggle on on the other side of the table, tapping their lands right. and setting yeah, their stuff. Yeah, auto-tapping around castles and Kenrith oh, yeah. is just wrecking you over and over. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this, this Gruel Aggro deck that cashed the Arena event has <laughs> two mobilized districts in the mana base. So oh, come on. I'm, it's not I'm even not playable without the mobilized that. district. Yeah, that's that's a bridge too far. Yeah, so I, I'm going to look at uh, not not this version, but like the Edgewall Innkeeper red-green decks. Okay, a little bit cleaner mana. Still some staying power, I feel Yeah, like. cleaner mana, lower to the ground. I do want to try Clothis. I feel like that card is just wildly underplayed for some reason. Powerful, powerful magic card. Wrecked me in Modern this week, actually. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Love to see it. Well, you want to shift over to Pioneer right quick before we get into the meaty modern format? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We just had the Star City event this past weekend. Right. Also, after SCG Regionals, there's SCG Baltimore, which I will probably be at, and that's uh, Pioneer on March 13th. So we've been told that there are no bans forthcoming. Nope, we haven't been told that. I mean, there's no bans forthcoming for the next week. That's all we've been told. We don't know anything more than that. Well, so Aaron had like this kind of big discussion on Twitter where it was just like, I mean, following the pro tour and the GP and everything, he was just like, yeah, we're, we're not banning anything right now. And I just assume that that means it, it's not like an open is going to move the needle or whatever. Right. So I just assume that they're letting things stay pat for now. I don't, I don't know. Opens moved the needles before magic online results moved the needles before I don't have an answer for you, honestly. I just want to bring up the possibility that there is yeah, maybe yeah. a ban so, lurking on the horizon. I, I'm saying, uh, like, as far as discussion of the format goes, I don't think that it is useless to discuss it because I don't think that things are going to get banned. I also don't think that you should run out and buy inverter cards. Like, let me be clear Agreed. on that. <laughs> okay, that is a good way of putting it. I'm happy to talk about as it stands now, not advising you to go buy these cards. Yes. Totally on board. Inverter is busted. That's basically just like what I put on my notes that I want to talk about. Uh, and even that doesn't have to be discussed ad nauseum or anything. It just seems like it is the best deck in the format and it is not easy to hate out. And yes. there is no real natural predator. So yes. what are we doing? That is my expectation for Demir Inverter is that it will remain the best deck. I don't think it's miles ahead of the field. I, I do think it's the best deck. I'm not trying to twist the words. I'm just saying it's not like Hogak levels of busted. It's just like somewhere less than that. Like maybe think team or energy levels of busted. I think that's a really good yeah. analogy because it, it's clearly the best and it has a lot of rooms to adapt and you can't really just do anything that's 
a hate strategy for Demir Inverter. I, I think that's a good analogy, although I will say that this deck's win rate is likely higher than Teamers was. Okay. Totally that's possible. possible. I have, that's a, I have that's no data. That's Teamers, so. Teamers was super low, right? And I would mm-hmm. imagine that Inverters is like upper 50s or something, but... Okay. I don't I don't have that on good authority or anything, so could just be making stuff up. Anyway... I, w- uh, I would expect upper 50s catches a ban. That's the only reason why I am hesitant to see it go that far. My expectation is that sitting somewhere around like 54, 55% win rates in the format. Okay. Inverter busted. I do like that deck. I think that the games are kind of fun until they just end, which then also sort of sucks, but... No, that's kind of good, though. We've talked a bunch about how it's good that games end. Like, there is a lot of setup and intricacy in the early turns. I know it feels bad the way they're ending, but like... So, this is is like the Felidar decks, too, when they are in standard, where it's like you're playing a nice, clean game, and then you just die. Then you just point at two cards, and the game ends. Right, and that sucks. That sucks. If, If... if you want to let them like, you know, untap with wilderness reclamation, like that's not even a good example. Cause that card sucks too. But uh, I don't know, like you get fireballed for 20 or something. Right. And it's just like, we played this game. My opponent got to 20 mana and they fireballed me. It's, it's like, okay, cool. Like that, that is a way for a game to reach its natural conclusion, but we're playing this game and like we're trading resources. Like, Oh, I've established like a little bit of a clock and then they peel an Oracle and kill you. And it's like, okay, well that's, that's stupid. GG. They should have to work a little bit harder is all I'm saying. Okay. What do you think about the way the inverter decks are trending at this point? Of course, this event won by Pete Ingram uh, seems mostly stock. I hesitate to call anything stock because this deck has remained in flux, but Narset's main, something I'm super high on. I think that card's very powerful, very heavy on discard, four thoughts, he's three thought erasure, mystical dispute in the main makes sense where this is the best deck pretty clearly. Only thing I'm not 100% on board with is just only three Thassa's Oracle. We talked a bunch about having as much of the combo as possible. There is a fourth copy in the sideboard, though. I should point that out. So, you know, you got to find space for these extra discard spells somewhere. I, I like this build a lot from Pete, and I think this is generally how you should be building the deck at this point. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I, I think you could certainly do much worse than just copying his deck at the very least if you're picking up the deck for the first time, starting with the open winning list. And, you know, this is this is Pete who has played decks like this. He knows how they work. He knows how they function. He knows how to build them and sideboard them to solve solve problems. And yeah, that's what I was going to say. He also top eight our pro tour in the same format with the same deck. So he knows what he's doing, right? Uh, You you could do wrong than just copying his list. But yeah, you, you need the discard spells for... The mirror match, I initially thought that you could shave on combo pieces, and I don't think that you should really be doing that. I think going to three oracles is fine, but definitely play four Jace, four Inverter, and just con- continue to do the thing that makes your deck good, which is end the game, right? Like, you wouldn't build the Felidar combo with, like, two Sahilis or whatever. I certainly made a bunch of lists like that, but I would, <laughs> I would advise against it. Right. You might do it, but you might regret it afterwards. Yes. And that, that was mostly how things went. Uh, even when I was like, oh, I'll shave once a Healy. It's like, why? Like The card's kind of bad, right? But it's not that bad. Felidar was just good on its own. And that's that's kind of how I feel about Jace in the deck. Like, Jace is just great. Right. Yeah, other than that, uh, Saltai, I think, is fine. Please, for the love of anything, cut Traverse. It is just not good right now. The, the targets are not impactful, Yes, Emrakul matters in the mirror match, but if you are graveyard hating each other, then it doesn't matter. Obviously, it matters in game one, but things like Ishkanov or Spirits in Mono Red, 
bunch of tireless trackers to win the attrition game against inverter in the mirror. Like that is where you want to be. Uh, I did play a bunch of Sultide Delirium this week. I, I can't imagine playing the deck without a large number of tireless trackers. It seemed so important in every single game I played. I did feel the pinch of just getting out Emrakuld, and you can't overcome that without traversing your deck. So you are trying to position for the format at large, which I think is the correct way to go about things. And I think people will call you out saying, well, I can't win this matchup anymore. And they're mostly correct when it comes to game ones anyway. But I do think that sacrifice can be worth the cost if you're just getting edges all over the place. And if if the Sultai Delirium deck isn't super represented, it was heavily represented at the Star City event. But as we filtered to top eight, it fell off pretty hard. It's all over the top 32. Uh, I don't really yeah, know it got, what it got to ninth also. That. Yeah, ninth place as well. That's true. So it, it's all over the top of the tournament. Didn't actually lock up any top eight slots. Yeah, and that's because they have... Sp- stupid traverse in their deck it doesn't do anything <laughs> there you go that's exactly why other decks have to mention jameson purdue wisely only playing two arcanist owls in his mono white devotion deck also picking up benelish marshall so i don't know if jameson is a uh, arena deckless fan or checked out my article last week but basically built mono white devotion exactly how i talked about it and was able to ride it to a top eight finish and i think this deck the the Heliod setup, the more aggressive lean on Mono White Devotion, still poised to pick up some percentage points in the format. Both the Mono White Devotion decks in the top eight have three Knight of the White Orchid. Okay. I'm not on board with that. You want the full four? Yeah. I don't remember if the list I posted had four Knight of the White Orchid or not. I would have to look. It's It's been two weeks now since I dabbled in building this deck, but I, I do love the aggressive slant for this deck. I will say that authoritatively. Yes, I agree with that. You, I mean, it's not exactly the same as Inverter. Like, you, you want to put on pressure while threatening the combo, and Inverter is just like, I'm going to slow you down while threatening the combo, mm-hmm. and forcing you to, like, hold open mana for counter spells or, like, a hero's downfall on a Jace or something. That is how they get ahead, and that's kind of how the Heliod deck gets ahead, too. And, and like, they, they don't even necessarily have to have the combo it just changes the way that you have to play the game. Yep. And that helps. So any other beatdown deck in the format, unless you find a good version of Mono Red or like a more disruptive, more resilient version of Spirits, something along those lines, I think that you should just be playing Heliod. Maybe uh, the Devotion one is the best one. I'm still kind of partial to the Collected Company, but whatever. Yeah, we'll see which one proves to be best. Uh, as far as the rest of the format... Lotus Breach, blown out of this tournament. Mono Red, blown out of this tournament. Spirits, blown out of this tournament. Just not participating in the top tier. Lotus Breach in particular, I think, is a noteworthy story. Only Paul Muller playing it to any success, finishing 12th. But this was the deck that everyone was super terrified about when you go back to the PT. Really dominated the PT in a lot of ways. And then you get to play some sideboard cards for it. And turns out, not that great once you're preparing for it. Right. Uh, everyone has like two to three damping spheres and the uh, inverter decks are going up on discard spells. They have things like Narset, main deck Mystical Dispute. Like things are getting really bad for Lotus Breach and they aren't the sort of deck that gets to adapt to those sort of things unless you want to dramatically overhaul how the deck is built. And I'm not sure that there's a good option for that. Like you could look at something like the Jeskai version that uh, Martin Mueller and co played at brussels but 
I'm not even sure that that, you know, solves the problems. It just like makes them a little bit faster, a little more inconsistent and gives you things like wear tear to handle sideboard problems. But that's about it. What's your opinion on having a deck like Lotus Breach in the format? Because I, I posted a little bit on Twitter about how I thought it was very interesting that people were so terrified about this deck and now it has fallen back to reality very, very hard because it is just a hyper linear combo deck and there are some very strong hate pieces against it. And that's generally how these hyper linear combo decks go. Some people suggested that regardless of whether you can adapt to it or not, it's still just a bad thing to have in the format. And I don't really understand that argument. Where do you fall on that? Having a wide variety of decks in a format is definitely healthy. I don't think I'm happy with the resiliency that this deck has and just like the the sheer power, I guess. Like the, the fact that you need to turn to sideboard hammers in order to have a shot against it doesn't make me very happy about its place in the format. I mean, things are a little bit different in modern where if you wanted to, you could play things like Meddling Mage or whatever. And Pioneer doesn't have access to things like that, at least for right now. Uh, but if, if we did have things where it was like, oh, well, maybe I can change my main deck to be a little bit better against this sort of deck, then I would be a lot happier about its inclusion in the format. I guess my problem is that once a format is scaling infinitely in size, as Pioneer is going to be doing, that's, it's, it's not a rotating format. The card pool only gets larger. Interactions like this are unavoidable. And the best way to account for that is just by printing good generic hate cards that can turn them into very precise meta calls. Like Lotus Breach is going to be wrong in 95% of tournaments, but if you find that 5%, you could really have a great weekend with Lotus Breach. And then next week, all the hate shows back up and you get wrecked. And I don't think you can really manage this style of play outside of that mode of interaction because these interactions will just pile up over time and there'll always be some way to do something egregious like this. You just want to catch it with your hate cards. Any merit to that or am I thinking about it wrong? No, I think that's fine. I mean, I I think that it is very interesting when we talk about like, okay, Lotus Breach was mostly decimated this weekend, but two or three weeks from now, maybe by the time Baltimore rolls around, like okay, like people have cut damping spheres from their sideboard and they forgot. And now is the time to actually pounce on the format with this sort of deck. Like those things are interesting to me. We just don't have main deckable cards that are able to create that sort of counterplay right now. Right. So you would like to see more interaction in game one and less reliance on sideboard. But at some point it just gets squeezed where it doesn't even matter that you're giving up game ones because the twos and threes are so bad and then nobody plays it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that that's fair too, but you know, the card pool gets larger, the combo deck likely gets better. And I'm sure at some point they're going to have incidental good ways to remove things like meddling mage or whatever, you know, like right. other combo decks have used things like fire ice or repeal and that sort of slot where you can just cycle it away if it's not really doing its job of interacting with a hate piece or something. And I think in time we will get something like that. Sure. I, I just think as long as you're printing cards at the power level of Underworld Breach, Things like this are an inevitability, and this is part of non-rotating formats is this hyper-linear gameplay, and I know people don't want Pioneer to have the same hallmarks of modern, but those hallmarks, hallmarks of modern are not intentionally built into the system. They're just an inevitability, and you can do your part to try and temper that, and I think the best way to do so is by things like meaningful proactive disruption stuff like thalia is a really good example i'm not saying this format needs thalia but cards of that ilk 
that can check these things in game ones and then really strong options in games two and three is how I would deal with this ever expanding card pool. Less hitting spots where, okay, this card's a little overtuned because I think eventually it'll just get tiresome for people buying into these type of decks. Right. And I think ultimately that's what people want is they want to have like, you know, their one to N amount of decks, you know, maybe you have two decks you like or three decks or whatever. And it feels much better to have the tools to be able to tune your deck to beat certain things rather than, well, now my deck is unplayable. I have to buy something new. Right. And that's, that's kind of where Pioneer is right now. Yeah. I also think it's worth mentioning that people like this play style. Not everyone. A lot of people don't, but people love their combo decks. Someone like Paul Muller, who plays Storm in Modern, wants to be doing things like this. There's obviously tons of Storm aficionados in Legacy. They appreciate the puzzle. And I do think it's important for Magic to represent multiple play styles in proportion. And this should certainly be a much less represented play style. What if Paul just hated it? He was just like, I, I show up to all these tournaments. I don't have any fun, but you know these decks are busted. Someone has to play them. I don't think that that's the case, but I, I, yeah. I think it, it would be funny. You know, it's like he's the, trapped the most, forever in storming. Yeah, the spikiest <laughs> spike. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly the potential for that, but I, I don't think this deck is there. I think if this is a deck that doesn't bear the target particularly well, as we've seen over the last few weeks, very strong, unquestionably, and it feels busted when it's doing its thing, but it is checked pretty well. Yes, agreed. All right, on to modern. Everyone's favorite format. You ready for this? So ready. So ready to talk modern. Played a lot of modern this week. Really? Okay. Yeah. So the narrative a couple of weeks ago, Amulet was the best deck with Dryde of the Elysian Grove, Valakit. Uh, the deck just became a lot more streamlined. You got to cut things like Boros Garrison, Sunhome. Uh, some folks cut Vesuva, which I don't really agree with because it's still pretty good. But you got to play a better plan B, which is just Valakid people. And with Once Upon a Time and even things like Arboreal Grazer, just like giving you more options, more different ways for you to build your deck. Like people have found a very good version of this and it seemed like for a time, nothing could really beat it. Mostly agree. It will always be for a time. I think when it comes to Amulet, you should always have options to attack this deck. If you don't, then I, I don't know what's gone wrong because... You can do things on turns one and two that Amulet just isn't super equipped to deal with. You can do stuff like, in fact, and sure, they can go to a bunch of engineered explosives and like make the matchup somewhere near acceptable. But again, they have to have been accounting for those possibilities in advance. And, you know, the really aggressive red decks are okay against Amulet in a lot of instances. And then there's just pure land destruction. You can play a Stone Rain deck maybe or find a good Blood Moon deck, although Blood Moon has gotten so so much more manageable for these decks now like it's it's almost not even good now that you have force of vigor uh ways to play other game plans but it does exist it's out there and i am seeing more blood moons in the queues at this point so i would expect that to continue uh i still think amulet tier one without a doubt it's just people have now done some necessary prep work and are starting to hate back on it a little bit i i think it is officially time for Amulet to not be tier one anymore. I think that we have actually moved past it, or at least the world of Magic Online has. It's hard to say whether or not that will translate into like regionals this weekend and like leading up to the Hunter Burton uh, at the end of March and everything. But there are some new combo decks and there are 
even like the control and mid-range decks have adapted fairly well. And there are some new versions of those decks popping up. And then a lot of people playing things like Death Shadow and Heliod, like these creature combo decks. So I think Amulet is mostly in for a bad time now. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that hasn't really come to fruition yet. The The main modern event this past weekend was a modern classic. Now, that's a very small event, not super representative of the metagame at large, but still four Titan decks in the top eight, two of them Amulet Titan. So at least in that tournament, things haven't turned all that hard. What do you have for Magic Online results? Was it just blown up when it came to the challenges and things like that? You know, like some decks doing well and getting posted, but also people posting their decks on Twitter. So like Pascal Maynard posted a grinding station underworld breach deck and God, I'm going to be sick of that card. Oh yeah. And when you said that when you started building it on magic online, you just labeled it as Urza because you assumed that there were Urzas in the deck. I, when I wrote it down, I labeled it as Urza breach. And like, I knew that there weren't Urzas in the deck, but just like in my mind, it's like Emery zero mana artifacts, grinding station, all this stuff. It's just like, oh yeah, Urza should should be in this deck or whatever, and it's just not. This is just a full-on Emery Underworld Breach combo deck. Yeah, this deck looks absolutely horrifying, and I would just put Urza in it. Like, I'm not sure why we're not doing that for a post-board plan. It seems completely reasonable to me, and basically the first move you're going to take against this deck is to up the level of Graveyard Hate, and we all know there's very effective Graveyard Hate in modern. So if this deck is as good as it looks on its face, I would expect that to trend up very hard. And you're going to want to juke when it comes to post-board games. Urza's a great juke. It does it all. A clock and card advantage all stapled onto one card. Huge mana engine. So I would definitely be looking at some sideboard Urza's as a way to make a nice move. And maybe at some point it'll just be the two decks merge and it's a main deck inclusion. Kind of like how legacy decks are starting to play Delver Breach setups this Underworld Breach card feels like it may not be long for this world. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> yeah. I like Urza. I also feel like you could do things with some Planeswalkers, but it's it's awkward because the, the Graveyard Hate shuts down Breach. It shuts down Emery. It doesn't really shut down Grinding Station because I already saw some screenshots of people milling their opponents out with it. Mm, that's a nice take. But like if you get Leylined and you play an Urza, that probably isn't enough to win the game. I think that you need a few other things going on. So you need more than just like, oh, I'm going to board in three or four Urzas and completely trump your ley lines, you know? Like a better plan might also just be wear and tear. You have the Teferi Time Raveler's main deck to get rid sure. of the ley lines and stuff too. And maybe you just try and fight through the hate. But if you can come up with a sideboard juke, I, I would be all about that. Yeah, it could be you just have powerful enough options that you don't even have to look into it. And you can just disrupt things like Leyline. Uh, we'll have to see what becomes the default mode of interaction with graveyards. It seems to change every single time we have a graveyard problem. Recently, it has been defaulting to Leyline of the Void. So we'll see if that proves true in this instance as well. Yeah, Rest in Peace is solid. Obviously, not every deck can play that. Every deck basically can play Leyline of the Void if they want to. But things like Surgical Extraction, Nile Spellbomb, Relic of Progenitus, like... They, they do a little bit of work, but definitely not enough. Speaking of graveyards, too, I, I pulled up the results from the modern challenge. Uh, of course, it was won by Dredge in the hands of Sodex. So we're at red alert for graveyards right now. Everyone pay attention to graveyards. It's graveyard hate time, without a doubt. Three copies of Amulet in that event, too. So 
I understand what you're saying. It doesn't seem like it's come to fruition yet, though. These decks are still finding success as it stands right now. Yeah. Third place deck from the classic I'm looking at is Grixis Urza Breach. And this deck actually does have Urza in it. Mm -hmm. It also has four copies of Sly Requisitioner to combo with Grinding Station. Good Lord. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of setups here. A lot of potential ways to make this combo work and all fueled by Underworld Breach. It's it's just an absurd magic card. It looks like Yawgmoth's Will. And that card has done some really absurd things in its lifespan. And it's it's hard to believe another Yawgmoth's Will just made it back. And it's a mana cheaper somehow. <laughs> so I don't really know what to say about that. And kind of better just because it can like persist throughout the turn, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a wild magic card. Uh, I ordered mine in the most basic, boring version possible because even I have limits when it comes to, oh, this card is really good in Eternal format, so I should buy the most uh, expensive version possible. Nope, don't feel that way about this card. I'm going to I'm gonna save a few bucks here, I think. That's eh, kind of smart. I don't know if you want to do something sweet with all your, you know, formerly expensive cards that are now banned. Like usually when stuff like that happens, I would just give them away to patrons. Right. So I would love to do that. They still have legacy and modern play at this point. Like it's basically Oko once upon a time, once upon a time, still fine and modern, still using that obviously in my amulet decks. Oko still one of the best legacy cards. In fact, it enables an entire play style that I think was mostly squeezed out previously. So if the time comes where it just gets erased, I will certainly be happy to donate those now very famous Okos to our patrons. <laughs> I I was mostly just talking about like, oh, if you got the full art underworld breaches or whatever, you know, like. Right. Well, those are still, I mean, those are like 80 bucks or something last time I looked. They were so expensive, so much more expensive than I thought they would be. You're talking about the foil ones though, right? Full art foils. Yeah. 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 I'm not, don't, don't, definitely don't get the foil. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me pass on that particular version. Yeah, I don't think you're going to send your foil mox opals out to patrons or anything, but, you know, like the Sahilis and Felidars and stuff like that, I, I shipped out to people. Okay, this is much cheaper than I thought. They're only $30. What am I scared of? For $30, I should be all in on this card. Dude, stop. Oh, okay. This is this is an intervention. <laughs> all right. And now the intervention's over. Back to modern. Uh, the other combo deck is kind of like Neo Ad Nauseum, where instead of actual Ad Nauseum, Simeon Spirit Guide, Lotus... Our lightning storm. You just have all the Thassa's oracles and inverters and right. angels grace or unlife plus oracle plus spoils kills people. Yeah. So this deck showed up in a five zero dump. Hasn't done much beyond that. I don't know if people are giving it a fair look, but again, you just look at this and you're like, wow, these cards combine for some really absurd turn three potential wins. They have a bunch of interlocking pieces. You have access to a few game plans. And that's when I start getting excited about modern combo decks. I I will say that is like the biggest selling point to the grinding station decks for me right now is that you just get to play engineered explosives, which is probably the best sweeper in modern anyway. So you get to be a really good engineered explosives deck and still have this explosive combo kill, which is a cool, cool setup. The Adnaz stuff doesn't do that, I don't believe. They're just more combo focused and less interactive, but still very consistent at doing their combo on turn three, turn four. Yeah, and they don't really care about any particular hate card either. Right. Yeah, much better at dodging, you know, targeted disruption. Yeah, and they just have a bunch of redundant combo pieces too. So uh, potentially scary. The reviews have been mixed. I know that the the player that posted the 5-0, I think it was Mint, 
said that they 5-0'd another one immediately after that. And then I had a swath of people message me after that. This is kind of like when you posted your ramp deck list and they're just like, I went three into you. This deck sucks. Right. So useful feedback. Thanks, Internet. You came through for us again. Yeah. I mean, like, so this person who developed this deck and tested it and tuned it, put up a bunch of five O's, you picked it up for one league dark and went three, two, and you're claiming that it's not busted. It's like, well, that's not really how it works. You know, do you think that uh, you played well and you were making correct decisions and that you sideboarded well and all this stuff? It's like, I mean, you going three, two in the dark with a complicated combo deck. I mean, that's, that's sort of alarming to me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. That bodes well for its future. So I don't know. The, The jury's still out on that one. I think at this point, the breach decks have been tuned pretty close to optimally like like we said there's a lot of different ways that you can take it and a lot of different versions and i like pascals i think you just need a good sideboard plan and you're just kind of there uh but both of those decks either way are very scary for amulet totally agree yeah you don't want your opponent to be doing really powerful stuff in those first two or three turns and then death shadow Uh, a lot of people have been returning to the shadow zoo deck there's also been some folks just playing like old school Jun Shadow. I like the the Swiss Fear builds. I think that those have a lot of merit just because, you know, people are playing Mono Red Prowess and Shadow kind of does that a little bit better. Like you don't have the nickel and dime, like, you know, shock you, lava dart you, whatever game plans where you just get to burn people out. You are very much all in on attacking with a very large creature, but you also get some good removal and disruption and sideboard hate out of the deal. So I could very easily see the Death Shadow Zoo decks making kind of a comeback. And then the Heliod deck is just scary too. Like Collective Company, Heliod, Spike Feeder is a combo that KOs a lot of people, but not Ad Nauseam or the Breach decks. Yeah, I think there's a hole there. Uh, Infinite Life has to be pretty good for me to pick up a deck like uh, Heliod Company. And I I don't know, it's, it's okay. Like I don't hate it, but like I, I told the story when I was doing coverage, kind of the breakout, event for the Heliod company deck, even though it didn't see a ton of success, but there were lots of stories from amulet players who were just decking the Heliod opponents after they gained infinite life because they would kill all your creatures with their dryad of the Elysian Grove Valakut setups, and they just couldn't right. actually kill you and you would win on decking them. So uh, that that's a problem. These are top tier decks you're talking about right now that don't care when you gain infinite life. And that is really the best thing that that deck does. It can kill you as well in some setups, but it needs usually more time to do so. It's a really quick thing to do, infinite life, and it may not be good enough. Yeah, it probably just means that the decks need to switch over from being like green-white base, spike feeder base into actual Heliod uh, Ballista Kills or like Heliod Finks Sacrifice Outlet and then Scry into a thing that legitimately kills them, like... Uh, red cap or ballista or whatever i I think just focusing harder on that sort of stuff rather than just trying to like company into infinite life makes a lot more sense right now yeah i agree with you or just play devoted druid that's also good because that mostly just kills people actions per turn too low don't buy it every time i see that deck I, i every time i see that deck i'm just like this is not good enough for modern it doesn't do enough stuff across the first three turns and you need too much mana to find all your setup the Heliod Company decks plays a fair game better and does the infinite life thing as at least a turn three potential like stopgap where you can push forward a game plan that might stop your opponent earlier. Devoted Druid just feels too solidly turn four, and I don't think that's good enough right now. 
Well, there there isn't a lot of actual interaction. So if anything, that makes me want to explore Devoted Druid a little bit more. Like I hated the deck when it was like, basically you're, you're just put in these spots where you have to play a Devoted Druid every turn. And then when one finally lives, then you get to kill your opponent. And for a long time, Modern just did not allow people to do that. And now I think we're in a format where your turn three Druid could live, you know? And that means that your actions per turn is not going to be very high on the first three turns, but your turn four, when you untap that thing a million times, that's a lot of actions per turn, man. That brings the average way up. A million is a lot of actions. I'll give you that. It just folds in the face of any kind of interaction. So like your game one setup, I totally believe that makes sense, but everyone has some removal when it comes to games two and three. And that's, I think, where the deck really starts to struggle. Yeah. Again, similar to the breach decks, right? Like you find a way to pivot. Sure. Yeah, find a good pivot and I could get on board, but haven't seen it yet. And the deck has never impressed me. It's shown up over and over and over again. And it's always the next big thing. And it just never shines when I see it in play. It looked really good for me at a period. And then I played it in a PTQ and I was like, this is heinous. I'm never doing this again. Right. But I just out from a fundamental perspective, like I don't like how the deck plays out because I feel like things are kind of like out of my control or whatever. It's like, oh, do they have this extra removal spell or don't they? And playing against the deck, I see the merit to it because I see how scary it is, how powerful it is, and how often I died on like turn three. So if y'all don't care about, you know, quote unquote, playing games of actual magic, then the deck is completely fine. And I think if you're signing up for a modern tournament, you kind of have to be okay with that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what we're all doing in modern. We we can fool ourselves from time to time, but uh, generally that's, that's the game plan when it comes to modern, at least in game one. Yep. Uh, other thing, Azoria Stoneblade, I posted an updated sideboarding guide to this deck because I just took a look at the format and was like, nah, this deck can hang again. I think four Field of Ruins and some some changes allow you to be reasonable against Amulet, and then you have a bunch of good sideboard hate cards. Like I, If Amulet is super big, or at least Primeval Titan in general, you actually have a reason to play Aven Mind Sensor, which is probably the best card against them, honestly. Okay. That makes a degree of sense. I started to see some of the Bant Snowblade decks pop up again. I Hate it. Yeah. Well, the biggest draw to me to playing like a Stoneblade style strategy right now would be white sideboard cards, including Rest in Peace. Having the best graveyard disruption seems to make a lot of sense. So you can't do the Uro stuff that some of these decks are trying to do anymore in that instance. Right. And I'm not really convinced on that card in the modern context at this point anyway. The format just needs to be more fair before something like Uro matters. I think that Uro setups are fine. I agree with you that it basically just doesn't do anything against all, basically all the decks that we've been talking about. Right. But as far as like playing a Thought Scour control deck that has a bunch of interaction and then that's your win condition, it's just super clean, right? Because it costs you nothing. Uh, you will find it eventually. And if you do draw it kind of early, you can either just, you know, cycle it away or Jace brainstorm it away or something. But how are you playing shield down on those turn three, turn four? Like it's not realistic to tap all your mana there. Yeah, you don't. You wait until like, well, I mean, turn four, turn four, I think is fine because then if you have like deprive mana leak, force of negation, whatever, like those sorts of things in your deck, you can do that. But yes, obviously it's not ideal to be in your opening hand against a lot of these decks, but the fact that it's like, oh, when I have to finally close a game, I have this thing that's just chilling in my graveyard. But again, people should be playing Graveyard Hate and, 
you are going to need a way to beat people who side in graveyard hate against you. And these decks are not super great at doing that right now. They have Jace and Ice Fang Quaddle and you said some of the ones play Stoneforge Mystic, but I don't want Stoneforge in my control deck. I want Stoneforge in my tempo deck. Sure. So I want to play like Snapcaster, Spell Queller. Uh, a lot of the moto lists just play Vendelian Click instead of Spell Queller, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh, some of them have Brazen Borrower too. It's like I can respect the clock, but I do think that you need a certain amount of interaction and against things like Underworld Breach, right? Like Spell Queller is just money. Yeah. Yeah, strong pickup there. And then what I have written down for the rest of the format are things like Uro and, and Kroxa. Kroxa. I don't want to and talk then... about that card. No? No, I don't want to talk about that card ever again. It, it has tricked me into my Jun League. It was a very sad, sad league. I went three and two. It was just so dumb. Every, every opening hand I looked at, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, I just mulligan constantly. I, I can't keep this. And it's like, it's probably a good Jun hand, but it's not a good hand in the context of the format. You just have to have a turn one play. And like, maybe you'll get lucky and your lightning bolt will matter. It probably won't. So it usually has to be Thoughtseize. And then if you don't have a follow-up on turn two, you've definitely lost the game. So I hope you have another, another threat rolled up. Otherwise just throw the hand back. So you mulligan to five every time. And then somehow you still win. And you're like, what just went on there? The real eye-opening thing for me was when I beat the the Bant Snowblade deck where they have Uro and uh, Ice Fang Coatl. So like they should just be accumulating card advantage and invalidate everything I'm doing. Right. And I, I still beat them. So I'm like, oh, this deck has to be real bad. But yeah, the, the fair stuff just doesn't make sense in the context of the format. And I thought about it a bunch like the difference between Kroxa and Oro and how much different discarding a card is from drawing a card and how much that scale has changed over time. Because certainly they were never equivalent. Like drawing a card has always been better. But I think the Delta was much smaller than it is now, where a card in hand is worth so much more than a card taken away from you. Well, it used to be about trading actual resources, right? And now... It is about like sticking a threat or doing your thing. And a lot of the time you have a redundant land or a combo piece or a creature that you don't need or the things that you have on the battlefield already are just killing them. Or they're a deck that's also trying to use the graveyard and don't really care. Yep. So there are merits to things like Croxa. I think that Jund is a decent place for it, but not really because Jund is kind of secretly this aggro deck like you can't really play full control with jund especially in the context of modern and just basically doing nothing on turn two like playing croxa and having them discard a card it just does nothing yeah unacceptable so i I thought them out every single game actually i was just like i can't have this card in my deck yeah it's 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 real bad if you want them as like a recursive grindy threat for like mirror match type of things then okay fine you could probably do better but i mean that is a thing that you can do but I don't know, discard into Croxa, into Liliana, like maybe that is a thing that you can try and do to people, but if it doesn't actually come together with Liliana, you just didn't really do a whole lot. No, I mean, maybe that's like a, a Blood Moon deck too, and the Blood Moon disruption matters, but you just like, give me a Deathrite Shaman and we can start having this conversation again. Until then, you're just not at the power level you need to be. So I didn't play Jund, but I did play a league with Red Black because a list 4-0'd or 5-0'd that kind of got my gears turning, where it was like a bunch of Unearths and Seasoned Pyromancers and Croxas, Dreadhorde Elemental, Lightning Skelemental, and it was real bad. (laughs) 
I believe you. I believe you entirely. Real bad. I even think that like I made a lot of good changes. And I think after the league, I learned a lot. And I made a lot of good changes. Real bad. Real every bad. every I- deck is loaded with redundant threats that overpower you in a single card. Like what they do in one card totally wipes out the six cards worth of investment you have put in trying to stymie their resources. Proxa, real bad. Yep. It's I'm still on the verge of being like, oh, well, maybe it's like playable and like this sort of thing or whatever. But I know that just at the end of it, I'm going to be like, no, 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 I know this has been our relationship with this card since the beginning. Like we put it on our top 10 standard list. And as we did so, we were like, this one's probably not going to pan out because you want it to be good. And it just seems like it should be good. It's got so much text and such a low mana cost. And you envision these games where it just snowballs and ends the game so quickly and they just don't exist. Yeah. Uh, as far as you mulliganing with John, I'm going to drop some knowledge on you right quick. Uh, I figured this out a while ago where I was playing Jund a lot. And I, I like played it in standard and you know some amount of modern. And I think during like Twins heyday and a little bit past that, I was playing Jund occasionally in tournaments and stuff. And I just, I, I used to do what you did, I think, where I'm just like, yeah, I need to be doing something on turn one because the majority of games that I see in modern involve, you know, like someone not doing anything and getting run over. But the reality of the situation is that you can't treat Jund like a deck that is going to be able to beat the top end of your opponent's range. Okay. So, so even if I agree with you, the problem is how much the world has changed since that point and the fact that the London Mulligan exists, meaning that the opponent has the top end of their range far more often. And like, there are some incentives on your side too, where you're more likely to have a defensible six. But I think the big problem is how just your opponent is apt to play and how well their hand is going to form in the absence of disruption now. I agree with you in theory. I am just saying that if you are playing Jund, I don't think that you can afford to really mulligan aggressively or like build your deck aggressively slanted to be able to interact with your opponent on turn one to make you feel nice and comfortable. Like, I just don't think the deck ends up being very successful because. Correct. Yes. Correct. You get to, in, you get to inquisition them on one and like, Oh, you started doing stuff and then you just end up losing anyway. Cause you're down a card. Right. Like I, I think that you just totally have to. Agree. Yeah. Kind of suck it up. Keep your seven. That's like two, three, four and four, four mana. And if you lose, you lose. And you will. But, and that's, yeah. that's the whole issue is that you will lose the, like, I agree. I totally agree with what you're saying. And it makes sense, but you're going to lose the other side of the equation too. And that's why John just can't be a real modern deck for the time being. Yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, basically, what I learned was I think I mulligan too aggressively with John. And I think that I did things like, you know, play 25 land with a bunch of utility lands and play mm. the seventh discard spell. And I just shouldn't have been doing that. Okay. No, it's a good takeaway. And the moment I don't feel like I have to make those kind of plays anymore. Then I will know Jund is back and I can keep my sevens and crush everyone. And it'll be a glorious day. Don't get me wrong. I want Jund to be good. I am never rooting against it. I can't wait for the tournament that I get to say with straight face. I am happy to register Jund, but it's it's not anytime soon. Yeah, your your opponent doesn't have the higher end of their range all that often. My opponents do. It's one of those things. My opponents well, then, always have it, Gerald. Then quit playing Magic. Thank you. Thank you for releasing me from this prison. I am free. All right, you're fired. That, that was the like genie wish that has put me free. 
and now I'm cursed to play like Call of Duty or something terrible for the rest of my life. Oh God, it's no, a real okay, monkey's you're paw. Hired. You're hired. Situation. You're hired. Thank yeah, you. yeah. And then the monkey's paw curled. <laughs> well, with that podcast out of the way, it is time for our question of the week. Every week, we solicit the fine folks in our Discord. They're burning questions uh, relating to our podcast topic. And since this is kind of like a potpourri episode, we, we just sort of field all sorts of questions. And the question that we arbitrarily select and choose to answer on the cast will get a fine enamel arena decklist pin, the only place you can get it in the universe. And the question that we picked this week comes from Jake the Jackal, a.k.a. Jacob Baum, and they ask, how do you feel about the removal of draft from the next PT cycle in favor of having a modern and standard split tournament? Will we ever get a strictly limited tournament, or is it just too bad for viewership? My reaction is, about damn time. Uh, I can't be as excited as you are. Like I, I do know it is the correct decision from a product and coverage perspective. Yes. Very, very smart. And also yes. the timing of this one too makes it extremely important because I believe this is for the PT finals, which is on release week, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense. PT War was kind of a nightmare, but that had a lot of other issues involved. Correct. Correct. So I, I do think that is a large part of the decision. There's also like positioning these PT finals as the kind of showcase paper event. You want to put your best foot forward. And I do yes. think from a broadcast perspective, your best foot is constructive. Yes. All that being said, there needs to be places for limited in the ecosystem. And part Agreed. of the problem with limited as it's presented at PTs is that audience expectations are pulled in different directions. And the bulk of audience expectations are focused around constructed decks and deck building. That is what people are mostly there for. That is your big selling point. Somewhat the personalities, but hard pull in that direction as to what makes people tune in. But if you just had a limited event and the real limited enthusiasts, the people who truly, truly care about that format were able to show up and know this is their chance. And it was presented in a way that use all the stuff they learned at Worlds about presenting a draft event successfully and really had a special feel and had its own track for qualification. I've talked about all this before and I feel like a broken record, but something that makes limited feel special and just has this one showcase event on a yearly basis. This is the limited championships. This is the world series, the world cup, whatever sports analogy you want to use of limited. This is what you should all care about. Give us that once a year. And I feel like you can do something with it. So this makes me sad. I, I love the skill testing nature of limited as a player. I certainly want to play limited at PTs. I think it is a huge, huge part of the experience, but I understand this decision from a viewership and product perspective. And that makes it really hard for me to question it. Who should Watsy be catering to? Is it like you, so you have the viewers of the tournament, right? You have the players in the tournament and the aspiring players who are trying to get to the tournament. All of them. <laughs> That's the problem. You need to you need to cater to all of those audiences. And the best way to do so is just by having multiple tournaments, like make portions of yes. the pie for every single person. And you can't please everyone all the time. So just hardcore please some of the people some of the time and 
separate this limited stuff from the PT, I think is the correct way to go. My, my point being is that if these are your marquee events, who should you care about? The vast majority of players in all of those ecosystems vast are majority. vast, vast majority are caring about constructed yes. and not limited. Yes. And cater to them. Also care about the people who play limited and care about limited and interact with that. But like the pro tour also does a bad job of that because it's only three rounds each day. You see so little of it and there's not extensive coverage, right? It's like you get to see one person draft and three rounds played, but there's no real like comprehensive breakdown or coverage of the limited format at large. So I doesn't, I don't think it even serves those players. Yeah. It's, it's always felt like an afterthought, quite frankly. And when you present something like an afterthought, it will become an afterthought. So it, right. it all checks out and it's just frustrating because my heart wants to make the argument for including limited, but I'm doing so against what I know to be what's best for a broadcast and probably for the game at large if I'm trying to make that argument. So I just have to, with a sad face on, say, yeah, this is probably the right step forward. Limited needs to continue existing. It needs to continue to be supported. I just don't think that it makes sense for them to have it exist in like the pro tour ecosystem. And especially like so many of the tournaments nowadays are constructed and they're constructed focused and people get to the pro tour who have literally never drafted before. Yeah. Clearly some, something bad is going on, right? There's space for it in the ecosystem. Like I I have no problem with there being an alt track that still gets you these mythic points or whatever. It's just, it it shouldn't be the flagship event. That's the only thing. Yeah, no, I agree. There should be something else specific carved out for this and it, it should maybe be its own thing. Obviously there can be like special mixed format tournaments or whatever, but it should not be every pro tour or worlds or what have you. I just, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense, especially considering that it's not, part of magic's normal ecosystem. Like they don't really prop it up during GPs or anything like that, or even during the pro tours and during worlds normally. So how, how are you going to continue to run that sort of thing during your marquee events and say like, Oh, this is a thing that people really care about when it's like pretty clear that only a small percentage of people care about. Yeah. It's a tough situation. I hope we find a good solution. I realize like I'm doing the thing where I'm just saying I have unlimited money to solve this and just give us another tournament, easy game. Things in the real world don't work that way. And if you're already at the point where you're like, we should remove this from our flagship event, it's going to be very hard to then sell it as something we should be focused on because you've basically conceded the point that this is not attracting eyes. And now you're like, but let's try and run a tournament anyway. It's going to be a hard road to walk down. And then maybe that's the biggest problem with this decision. And it probably marks a step in the direction away from limited. And that's sad. I, I would not be still playing magic without limited. Uh, still my favorite way to play magic. And I wish there was more limited in the entire ecosystem. There's another draft PTQ at GP Seattle. I found out about that. Pretty awesome. excited to play that one. But yeah, I wish that was a regular feature, not a, not a rarity. Correct. Yeah. The, the ideal scenario would have been them announcing something else to go along with this. Right. 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 Uh, It's like, oh yeah. Okay. There's not going to be limited here. Here's why, but we care about these players and recognize that they want to play this at a higher level. And like, obviously there are a lot of very, very good limited magic players out there who don't really care to invest in constructed. Oh yeah. Tons. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? The old school limited ringer, you know, tons of them. I know you do. 
I could probably rattle off a hundred names yeah. if you give me 30 minutes, you know, I believe it, but yeah, so this, this should have come with something else, but that's only assuming, I guess, if their plans involved something else, which maybe it doesn't. So we'll see, we'll see how it plays out as it stands. This is a very mixed bag for me. I am saddened, but recognize that the broadcast will probably benefit from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy about it. Uh, there are obviously people who are going to be disappointed. I think it's net positive across the board. Welcome to 2020. That's game. Good luck.